There's some that like the city grass that's curried smooth and green. Theater strangling collars, wagons run by gasoline. But for me, it's horse and saddle every day without a change. The desert sun's blazing on a hundred miles of rain. Just riding, riding, desert rippling in the sun. Mountains blue along the skyline. Who could envy anyone when I'm riding? There ain't nothing like the feeling that you get down deep inside as you trot out in the morning when you're hired out to ride and your mount's enthusiastic. Nearer's crisp and new, and there's lively conversation going on amongst the crew. There's some bridal crickets chirping, jingle bobs tap out a tune. On one side, the sun is rising, just ahead there sets the moon. Shadows high trot there beside you, elongated, keeping pace, reassuring you ain't hobbled by restrictive time or space. Out in front, the boss is posting to the same beat as his song. It's then the realization hits you. You're right where you belong. Earlier this year, I traveled to the United States to a small town called Elko in the high desert of Nevada. I was going to attend the 13th annual gathering of cowboy poets. I traveled with a tape recorder, my innocence, and a lot of questions. Did real cowboys still exist? Did they actually sit around reciting poetry to one another when the day's work was done? Were there any connections between cowboy culture and traditional Irish culture? Almost immediately, I met Waddy Mitchell and Don Edwards, two guys with moustaches almost as wide as their hats, wearing tight jeans and tight smiles, and walking with that bow-legged, pigeon-toed, horseman's gait that folks around here call a mosey. I was born and raised on ranches in northeast Nevada. Uh, the ranch I grew up on was 60 miles from the nearest town, 14 miles from the nearest neighbor, uh, and 33 of those miles were all dirt road to the ranch. We didn't have electricity, so uh, I grew up in a very, very old-fashioned uh, storytelling uh, lifestyle. And did you work as a rancher or as a ranch hand? I've, I, I grew up in, in ranching and then spent 26 years as a professional cowboy. So you got the credentials? Well, I've got the experience. Credentials are, that means you've earned something. All I've done is been there. Would you now describe yourself as being a professional poet and performer? Yes, I would. I'd have to say that because that is how I make my living now, is just uh, performing and writing poetry. And it is possible to make a full-time living out of performing and writing poetry? For a few of us, it is. Uh, there's a lot of guys out there keep questioning us about these things. Uh, I think the potential is becoming more and more that there, there's room for other people, but right now there's probably uh, fewer than you can count on your hands actually making their full living doing what, what I'm doing. How did you make the break from being a working cowboy to being a working poet? It, it was almost fate. I uh, was out on a ranch that I was running. I lived there nine years. We were 180 miles from the nearest town. We lived the old cowboy lifestyle, and they were doing a documentary on the last of the cowboys. And they came out, and because the film crew obviously thought, well, we'll go out and film during the day, go get a motel room. Well, when they realized it was six and a half hours into town, uh, they, they ended up staying at the ranch. Uh, we cooked with wood, and in the summertime, it was too hot to cook with wood in, in the house. It made the house too hot, so we always had a, a fire outside and would just cook over it and then sit around and visit. 
And uh, we started telling these stories, and every one of them went back. And next thing I know, magazines were coming out, and Johnny Carson called me up and wanted me on the show, and people started getting an interest in it because uh, they got exposed to it for the first time. Don, could you, uh, could you tell me a little bit about your background? You're from a different part of the, of the range. Yes, sir, uh, from, uh, from Texas, Weatherford, Texas, about 40 miles west of Fort Worth. And I was uh, pretty much raised in Texas. I was uh, Eastern-born. I was not grown up in ranching tradition, uh, but I was fortunate enough to have a lot of dear friends that were ranchers, cowboys, and things, so I've had some first-hand experience, but uh, I've always considered myself a, a musician and a singer, you know, and of traditional music. I noticed the Wadi uh, avoids singing, if he can possibly help it. He, he, looks, he looks quite nervous if anybody asks him for a song. You don't. You, you love it, don't no, you? Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> well, it'd be the same way as me trying to, you know, recite poetry, but they're very much akin to each other. Uh, the, the balladry is, uh, is very much poetry in itself, and uh, it's just done in a slightly different way where I do it with a, with a guitar and he doesn't have to pack all that stuff around, you know? <laughs> Are you conscious of any connections between the material that you do and Irish music or Irish influences? It's probably totally influenced with the Irish and the Scottish, yes. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, I would say uh, as much as probably 90% of it. I mean, the, the old ballads that came from the old country that came through Appalachia, uh, and by the time they reached the West, the they were generally the melodies pretty much stayed intact and the uh, the the lyric content was was changed to suit the the cowboy surroundings or the surroundings they were living in whether it be a cowboy or a westerner or whoever but the uh, uh, the lyrical the, the the vernacular the the talk the the lingo everything was uh, was changed around to suit them but the but the old Irish melodies were still very much intact and uh, very heavily influenced by that. Well, I don't need no art exhibit when the sunset does her best. Painting everlasting glory on the mountains to the west. And your opera looks so foolish when the night bird starts his tune. And the desert's silver mounted by the touches of the moon. Just riding, riding, who could envy kings and czars? Waddy and Don are a double act. Waddy recites, Don sings and plays the guitar. They're professional, very professional entertainers. You ate breakfast by the Coleman, hurried round to beat the sun. You've 11 miles behind you, but it's here the work's begun. Downtown, when folks must travel to their workplace every day, it's said that they're commuting to their job during their pay. They choke in crazy traffic jams, fight for seats on bus or train. It's a wonder that this ritual doesn't drive them all insane. We too, I guess, commute to work as the job at hand dictates. But we commune while we're commuting. What a difference that makes. The culture of the cowboy on the ranch is a modern mythology of international dimensions. It's also an endangered culture because it's based on a lifestyle that's nearly extinct. There are obvious parallels between it and the situation traditional Irish culture found itself in a hundred years ago. In the Gaelic revival, a number of intellectuals and academics rallied round to try to save the vestiges of a very ancient tradition. The same thing has happened to the cowboys. The Western Folklife Centre has been organising cowboy poetry gatherings for the past 13 years. 
It's essentially a folklore institute, and the gatherings are consciously revivalist meetings which aim to gather the bards and the balladeers from all over the West and to celebrate the value of their culture, both for people who still live on ranches and for the vast majority of us who live urban lives. The founding director of the revivalist movement is a large and gentle fanatic called Hal Cannon. It started as an experiment, uh, like all great things. <laughs> And I call it great, not from any personal uh, um, ego. It's just, it really has been a, an important movement, a grassroots arts movement in the west of the United States, in the rural places of the United States. Um, and it was uh, started really as a way to bring ranching people, men and women, together to tell their own stories. And uh, we didn't realize when we started this how profound that was. Uh, in the past, the cowboy story has been told by filmmakers and uh, historians and journalists and uh, a myriad of people, songwriters, but rarely told by the people who live the life themselves. And, and I think that's one of the most important aspects of it. Uh, since that uh, initial beginning 13 years ago, there's been over 200 other events that have started that uh, sort of emulate this. Uh, this has sort of become a big national version of it, but there's a lot of very small grassroots sorts of uh, events around uh, the western United States that uh, feature cowboy poetry, cowboy story, cowboy music, uh, the cultural roots of cowboy, cowboy uh, visual arts, and so forth. When our country was uh, founded in the uh, 1770s, 98% of Americans were agriculturalists. They were farmers, and uh, our government was based on the concept of the yeoman farmer. Today, there's 2% uh, of our population which bases its livelihood on uh, farming or ranching in this case. There just aren't the numbers that there once were. Uh, so just in terms of numbers, there aren't as many. But, and also there's, there's so many influences. I mean, you can be in the most rural place and still have an 18-inch satellite dish and pick up programming, television programming from all over the world. So the whole idea of isolation isn't there anymore in the world. So it's affected cowboy culture in the same way it's affected uh, culture in the most remote, remote parts of Donegal. <laughs> there are direct relationships between this poetic tradition, the recitation tradition, the ballad form tradition, the fiddle music, uh, many of the expressive uh, aspects of cowboy life are mirrored in, in Irish uh, culture. And um, I think that's one of the more fascinating things about it. Well, you're not exactly blue, but you don't feel like you do in the winter nor on long, hot summer days. Still, your feelings and the weather seem to sort of go together and you're quiet in that dreamy autumn haze. When that last big steer is goaded up the chute and safely loaded and the summer crew has ceased to hit the ball, and the feller starts to drag him to the home ranch with the wagon for he's finished shipping cattle in the fall. There's just two men left to standin' on this job for winter's brandin', and your partner, he's a loafin' at your side. 
He's got a brand new saddle creaking. Neither one of you is speaking, and you feel it's going to be a silent ride. But you savvy one another. See, you know him like a brother. Oh, he's friendly. He's just quiet, that is all. And he's thinking as he's dragging to the home ranch with the wagon, for he's finished shipping cattle in the fall. Randy Riemann is a working buckaroo. Buckaroo is the word commonly used in Nevada to describe a cowboy. It's a corruption of the Spanish vaquero. He also writes and recites poetry. That poem, When You Finish Shipping Cattle in the Fall, is not one of his own. It was written by the late Bruce Kiscadden, one of the most famous of the classic cowboy poets, and my own personal favourite. Paul Zarziski, Hey Dick, if you want to remember my second name, it rhymes with bar whiskey. Well, Paul is not a cowboy, though he worked for many years as a bronc rider on the rodeo circuit. But he is a poet and a slightly unusual one because he's abandoned the lazy hoofbeat of the iambic pentameter which Bruce Kiscadden and all the classic cowboy poets made their own, and he writes in free verse. Free verse is not, is not an absence of rhyme. There, you can't have poetry with an absence of rhyme. Free verse um, is held together just like a, a very formal rhymed and metered poem. It is held together by similar sounds echoing off of one another within the poem. It just doesn't, they just don't always occur out at the ends of the lines. They're internal rhymes, they're internal rings and ricochets, and I work very hard on that music. And you do love the sound of words. I love the sounds of words, and um, in fact, it's the reason that I became a poet, because I did not grow up uh, reading poetry. I grew up in a bookless house. My father was an iron ore miner, who used to tease that he got kicked out of the second grade for not shaving. And the truth of the matter is, I don't think he finished high school. My mother didn't read books. So I didn't grow up around poetry. I didn't like poetry. I didn't think poetry uh, was about my life. I didn't think poetry, uh, I didn't think my life was worthy of poetry. And therefore, I put it in kind of a pretentious uh, place. Uh, and, um, and I thought poetry doesn't, you know, doesn't embrace my life to hell with it. Uh, I'm not going to embrace it either until later on when I learned that there were actually living poets writing about passions that were every bit uh, mine. Could you just give us an example of one of your poems? Could you recite a short poem for us? I'm going to do, the, I'm going to do a poem called Words Growing Wild in the Woods. And you might not think it's a cowboy poem, but I've done it here to... Um, to a, to a great embrace and praise because it's a poem about poetry. It's a poem about where my poetry comes from. For, were it not for this poem, were it not for the moments I spent with my father in the woods as a little boy and asking him questions, being very inquisitive and curious about the names of plants and nature, trees, animals, birds, um, I would not be here. I'd say, Dad, what kind of tree is that? What kind of plant is that? Uh, he used to put me on his shoulders and carry me back into, the, into his secret fishing streams. And, and he always had his dry flies in the band of his hat. What's this red and white one, Dad? And he'd say, oh, that's a Jock Scott or something. And I always loved the names of things. That's where all the poetry was first sparked. So this is called Words Growing Wild in the Woods. <clears throat> a boy thrilled with his first horse 
I climbed aboard my father, hunkering in hip boots below the graveled road berm, Kaminsky Crick funneling to a rusty culvert. Hooking an arm behind one of my knees, he lifted with a grunt and laugh, his creel harness creaking, split shot clattering in our bait boxes. I dreamed a Robin Hood, paladin, sin-bad life from those shoulders. His jugular pulse rumbled into the riffle of my pulse, my thin wrists against his Adam's apple, a whiskered knuckle, prickly as cucumbers in our garden, where I picked night crawlers, wet and moonlit, glistening between vines across the black soil. I level with an array of flies, every crayon color fastened to the silk band of his tattered fedora, the hat my mother vowed a thousand times to burn. I learned to love the sound of words in the woods. Jock Scott, Silver Doctor, Quill Gordon, Mickey Finn, Gray Ghost booming in his voice through the spruce. At five, my life rhymed with first flights, bursting into birdsong. I love the piquant smell of fiddleheads and trilliums, hickory and maple leaf humus, the petite bouquets of arbutus we picked for mom. I love the power of my father's stride, thigh deep against the surge of dark swirls. Perched offshore on a boulder, safe from wanderlust, but not from currents coiling below, I prayed to the apostles for a ten-pounder to test the steel of my telescopic pole, while Dad, working the water upstream and down, stayed always in earshot, alert and calling to me after each beaver splash between us. I still go home to relearn my first love for words echoing through those woods. I caught one, Dad, I caught one, Dad, Dad, skipping like thin flat stones down the creek, and him galloping through popples, split shot ticking, to find me leaping for a fingerling, my first brookie twirling from a willow like a jewel. Paul Zarzeski writes poetry I really like, but he is something of a renegade, the son of a Polish blue-collar worker from the Midwest who ran away from home full of cowboy dreams and ended up riding bucking horses for a living. But he's nothing like as big a paradox as Henry Realbird. Henry is the ultimate mixed-up kid. He's an Indian cowboy. My name is uh, Henry Realbird, and I'm a, I'm a Crow Indian out of uh, Mont southeast Montana, Croydon Reservation, uh, over on the Little Bighorn. I pick up my mail at Gary Owen, Montana. That's where I live. That's where I grew up, and I'm a enrolled member of the Crow Tribe. Tell me about the work you did as a, as a cowboy, or the work you did with horses. Oh, the, I, I grew up, and uh, I was young, and I used to look across the river, the little bighorn over there, and the cowboys from Padlock would be riding over there, and I knew that's where the cowboys were. As soon as I was able to get over there, I was over there. And I, I uh, oh, on the on the wagon branding crew and uh, riding some good horses and, and bedroll at Chuck Wagon. Oh, I've been lucky enough to... Uh, to be in the lead of the Remuda, moving camp through the timber right by Custer's Lookout, and man, just uh, beautiful, you know. With the, I'm ahead of the horses, and then the the chuck wagon and the bed wagon, and oh man, it's just uh, amazing. And then to be around that all the time, so that's all I've ever known. 
is the horse, whether I'm, I'm cowboying there or breaking horses or just flat uh, riding and taking care of cattle or whatever. And, and so I just, but uh, I, I, I also uh, realize the importance of, uh, of an education in the world that we live in. And that was instilled in me by my grandfather, uh, Owens Painted Horse, Mark Realbird, and my grandmother. And so that's all I've ever done in my life is to just ride horses and take care of horses and then to to go to school and to write and so the the, the blend was just easy and so I I consider myself uh, a cowboy but I'm an Indian first and then I took care of business and, and I have no no problems of uh, what, whatever order things are because I know who has uh, plastic heels on their boots and and different things you know yeah could you give us a couple of examples of things you've written yourself? Could you recite a couple of your own poems? Oh yeah, I've got uh, oh, I have one that I that I can just flat do right here is uh, oh let's see uh, it's called uh, driftwood filling. <clears throat> How this came about was uh, I was at the racetrack and this old man that I go into uh, sun dances with peyote meetings and. Uh, Sweat lodges and and uh, just great uh, spiritual helper, and uh, one of my clan dads, and so uh, he was at the racetrack and generally he doesn't go there. And so I asked him, uh, uh, his name is uh, Door, 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 D O R, D O O R. And so, uh, uh, what are you doing? And he said, Well, be what you hitch got it, but as a near you suck He said, Driftwood. I am like, my heart's way, I can't do, I'm catching a ride. And I realized the beauty of the language right there. And, and so then, so then I, I packed it around for a couple of years and then I put this together, but uh, it's called Driftwood Feeling. How much longer do you want to be in the wind? Elk River's edge, there I'm standing looking for a feeling in the wind. Feeling got a roam, so I come down river to look around. Feeling got a roam, so I reached in the roar of the water for a feeling in the wind. Driftwood feeling, floating down Love River. Heart's way can't do, I'm catching a ride, floating down Love River. Driftwood feeling, floating down Love River. Heart's way can't do, I'm catching a ride, floating down Love River. Somewhere between the reflection and the stars is the feeling of life and love, where you can hear the stars in the wind. Feeling twinkling in cottonwood leaves. Just a feeling in the wind from yesterday in days gone by can I have tomorrow from yesterday that I borrow. Driftwood feeling floating down Love River heart's way can't do I'm catching a ride floating down Love River. Driftwood feeling floating down Love River heart's way can't do I'm catching a ride floating down Love River. I was beginning to realize I was in a very foreign country rolling mountain ranges and sagebrush flats, all mantled in snow, a small town full of garish casinos, and suddenly this town had been invaded by cowboys, thousands of them roaring in in big pickups, arriving by the plane load at the little airport, filling all the motels. Strange people in Stetson hats and high-heeled boots, coming into town for the poetry. And, I noticed, not all cowboys are male. Far from it. Sue Wallace had the boots and a fine hat, but you couldn't really call her a cowboy. 
we had a ranch on uh, Bitter Creek in northern Wyoming, and we fed about a thousand head of heifers in the winter with a team of horses in a sleigh. And that is a uh, work that has a lot of empty space in it. In other words, you, you go to a hay corral, you load the, the wagon or the sleigh, and then you feed the cattle who are right there. And then it may be another mile before you get to the next hay corral and the next bunch of cattle. And this would take all day long. And uh, so he uh, uh, taught himself Kipling poems. So he would recite these things as we were traveling from hay corral to hay corral, and he'd teach them to himself at the dinner table. So he would learn a verse a day or so at the dinner table at lunchtime, and then would uh, practice them as we were feeding. And uh, he, I think, picked up the practice from an, an old neighbor of ours whose name was Blitz Nelson, who could do, he could recite the entire rhyme of the Ancient Mariner from heart, and he knew all sorts of things. And, and uh, I think Dad thought that was pretty neat that Blitz could do that and decided to do it. So it was something that I kind of grew up around and then lost track of until I was in my 30s and went back to school. And I was writing um, at the time and, and then made the connection with this whole group of people, the poetry gathering, and really felt like I'd found my roots again. Just talk to me for a minute or two about the, the Irish input or the Irish connections with cowboy poetry. Well, there are many and varied. And uh, one of the things I'm really... The, the connections between the Irish and uh, the cowboy West, uh, 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 all the way from examples like... Uh, the, there's a lot of Mexican influence, but you can see the Irish influence when you take a piece of equipment like... Uh, what the Mexicans called the macate, which is a, a, a piece of gear for a horse's head, kind of in, in the fashion of a bridle. And uh, uh, the uh, cowboys, who were of largely Irish descent, uh, changed that term to macarty. So, uh, you know, things like that are, are scattered throughout the lingo. And uh, uh, I think that probably... Um, I would, I would hazard to say that probably three-quarters of the cowboys who settled in the West were of Scot or Irish descent. You recite other people's poetry, and you also recite your own verse. Could you give us just one example of your own stuff? You bet. Um, a little toast. I call it a toast to a sagebrush flat. I wrote it several years ago for the Northeastern Nevada uh, Symphony, and uh, I put together a suite of six pieces, and this was the the end of, of that piece. And, and I also wrote it when I moved from Wyoming to Nevada, and I was very homesick. Uh, there are many similarities, and I love Nevada, but it was, uh, you know, it was a long ways from home. But the one thing that they have in common are these big open spaces, uh, sagebrush flats that just stretch forever. So this is a toast to a sagebrush flat. Life and flats are far too short. When covered in a slow lope, some long and stretching stride that covers ground to horseback. Rock and dance and waltzing through the brushy places in an easy slipping gait that makes you sit up straight and grin. Throw back your head and laugh out loud into the grass and sky and sun and wind. And just because it's so damn sweet to be alive and ride. May we all have lots of life and long, long flats to lope like that.
The reason the cowboy poetry gathering is held in Elko is that Nevada has more federal land than any other state in the West. This is unfenced open range, identical to the landscape where cowboys invented themselves in the 1860s. The ranchers can rent the grazing rights to huge acreages of sagebrush from the federal government, and the most efficient way to farm it is to use traditional methods, including feeding and herding cattle on horseback. I visited the Spanish ranch, about 60 miles from town, where four full-time buckaroos use a cavy, or herd, of about 150 horses to tend 9,000 head of cattle on just over 2 million acres of land. The cowboys are young men, shy, not anxious to talk to strangers, devoted to their work, which is just as well, because it's one of the worst-paid professions in America. They make around $300 a month, which is about what they get on the dole in Ireland. Though they do get rather primitive board and lodging thrown in. They look every inch the cowboy, apart from the fact that they don't carry guns. Connie Satterthwaite works here too. Her husband is the manager, her father ran the ranch when she was growing up, and she is a noted horsewoman. Uh, I saw a T-shirt that said, the best cowboys are cowgirls. I think women have more patience and take more time and are maybe a little more sensitive, you know, because I don't like to see one choke down, you know, when you're putting the halter on, of course they're going to pull back. So I kind of give to them and I can still get the same job accomplished without being rough or, you know, I like, I think I'm sensitive to, to them and I like to do it real gentle. Can you just take me through a, a, a typical year in, in, of life on the ranch? What happens at the different seasons? All right, well, we'll start with uh, spring, which is, uh, there are a lot of calving. And our first year heifers were start calving in February. And that's not all, <clears throat> almost not springtime yet, but we start the first year heifers in February and then March and April, the majority of the rest of them. Uh, at the end of March, uh, we are permitted to go outside with so many head uh, out on the ranges, out on BLM, Forest Service land. That, that would be public Least land. Least land, mm-hmm. And we turn them out there. The older cows, they calve out there. And uh, they spend the summer there. Now, in the summer, about the end of May, the cowboys go out on the wagon. And the wagon is when you take all your gear, your cavy, each fellow has about seven head of horses. And uh, they take them out. I mean, it's way out there. You know, there's no civilization out there. And they take a cook, and we do have a, a cook wagon that has been rebuilt from an army truck that he has, that he cooks in. So it, it goes by its own power down to where they're going, hopefully. <laughs> And the, the cavy, they drive the cavy down there. What's that? The cavy is the, the herd of horses that they each use. So there's 
50, 60 horses. You need more help doing uh, wagon time. And you go out and you stay in, in one place for maybe five or six days and you ride and gather and brand all these that you've turned out previously and that have calved since then. You brand them, give them their shots, um, you put out salt, you maybe push them to higher ground and better feed, different area. Um, and they do that for six weeks. They usually get in around the 4th of July. And they'll move camp. They, they make about four stops. And it's really big country. I mean, they might ride 20 to 30 miles in a day. So that's why they need so many horses, because you can't use a horse day after day and do that. And then in the summer, in our operation, our steers are under fence, uh, but it's a great big area. And so they have to be moved about in the middle of the summer. Summer is probably the slower time because all the cattle are out. But they do have to gather the steers and move them to a different area. Sometimes that's when they break colts, uh, ride the young ones, even break some workhorse colts uh, if they get around to it. And then in the fall, uh, the cattle start coming in on their own, depending on the weather. Like a first, the first snowstorm starts them home. Hunting season starts them home. And they know where home is and they, they'll just drift in. We'll open the gates and they'll drift into the fields. And uh, then they uh, start classifying them. They'll, they'll go out and they'll take like 200 head and then they'll work them. The dries go here, the, the heifers here, the cows and baby calves here, the cows and medium calves here, cows and big calves here, and they classify them in all these fields. And then the next day they'll go to a different area of the ranch and do the same thing until pretty soon you've got all your cows and baby calves in one field and, you know, they're they're uh, pretty much the same kind of stock in, in each field. That way when you want to go dehorn or wean or something, you've got the calves that you want to work with all together. And so that goes on pretty much through October, November. Some of them still dribbling in in December. We fly the area, see what we missed. And if there's anything out there that we missed, then they go get them. And then through the winter, uh, the cowboys basically don't feed, but that's what's happening to the cattle is that they're just being fed. They will dehorn, wean calves, and we haul a lot of them down to our farms down below Battle Mountain because it's a little milder and they have alfalfa there. We're, we just have wild hay. And uh, ride feed grounds and doctor. Try to keep them well. They see a sick calf, they doctor. Have to know how to rope pretty good to do that. And then in the, you know, just in the spring, like now it's January, and they'll just keep checking feed grounds, weaning, dehorning, and then pretty soon they'll be going back out, start to cycle all over again. When the cattle are prowling and the coyotes are howling, 
Out under the western sky A cowboy is singing His spurs they're a jingle As down the trail he rides started making records, really went downhill from there. <laughs> Many hours he'll ride on the range far and wide when the night wind blows up a squall. Well, his heart's like a feather in all kinds of weather. He's going home this fall. over in Switzerland. I've been practicing. Okay. Back in town, most of the activity is centred around the big casinos. These are huge buildings, but for some reason nobody could explain to me, Nevada law only permits gambling on the ground floor. Up one flight of stairs, the cowboys, the poets and the musicians are gearing up for a nightly ritual. They call it a jam session. To somebody from Ireland, it's a very familiar scene. Lots of alcohol, lots of talk, lots of people gathered round musicians. Singers forgetting the words of the song. Everybody on their way to bed, but nobody quite making it. Somehow, this is what convinced me. This, more than visits to the ranch or formal poetry recitals, convinced me that there is such a thing as cowboy culture and that it is still alive and well. <laughs> 